Registry Matters is an independent production. The opinions and ideas here are that of the host and do not reflect the opinions of any other organization. If you have problems with these thoughts, FYP. Recording live from FYP Studios East and West, transmitting across the internet. This is episode 287. We'll go with 287 of Registry Matters. This is going to be the part two of the question and answer session that we did uh, last week that you heard. And it's another, uh, it's almost split almost exactly in half. And uh, so there you go. But I want to thank patrons so very much for all the support over all the, of the years and all the listeners. Thank you so very much for making 2023 a successful year and look forward to continuing all this in 2024. And uh, so we'll be off for Christmas. If you're listening to this, it should be pretty much right around Christmas and Merry Christmas, happy holidays. And um, yeah, so there you go. Talk to you soon. Um, all right, well, then we're going to move over to Rocky, and Rocky gave us, I think it's five if I'm counting right. So this is going to be the speed round, Larry. You got like 10 seconds to answer each one. I know the first one you hate. So which state is the easiest to get off the registry? And then uh, conversely, which one is the hardest? <laughs> Florida, hardest, impossible. Well, that would be easy if there's some states where there's just no pathway off and if there's a pathway off, even though I may not like those pathways, and I don't like most of them, when they have a pathway off that requires a petition, I do not like that. But I prefer that over no way off. And I tell people, gee, I'm, I'm doing the comparison here of, does California have a better process now than when they had no way off? Of course they do. If there's no way off and there's now a way off, absolutely, that's better. It may not be ideal. It's kind of like in Arkansas, they have a risk-based system. It's not ideal, but it's better than throwing everybody in the same pot and saying they're all the same. But uh, there are states where you just have to die on the registry. And that is that would be the hardest thing to deal with for me is that there's no pathway off. Can you imagine going down with oxygen and being on a wheelchair after the walker? Can you imagine all these things? Then being bedridden, what would you do then? Um, Seems like it'd be a challenge. Um, I, I do want to mention that Narsal has a wiki. These are uh, volunteer updated laws and statutes for, I believe they have all 50 states and some of the territories as well. So go to, I'm pretty sure the URL is statewiki.narsal.org or just go to the front page of narsal.org and look for resources and you'll find it. And then go look at your state and then you can look through where they have what your requirements are to either be included on or get off. And then they generally cite to which part of the statute is there. And uh, it's at least, as even with Wikipedia, it's at least a first cut of where you could go to find out more information and get an idea of what you're looking for. I would say the the state to get off the easiest would be a state, and I'm not going to necessarily name the state on the program because that'll drive the people on Reddit even crazier. But <laughs> I would say the state, a state where you time out. You do not want to have to file a petition because A, it costs money, and B, there's no guarantee it will work. But if you could find the group of states where there are no, uh, they don't translate you. Uh, let me figure out how to word this where it makes sense. 
if you go to a state that hypothetically uh, doesn't treat you based on what you had when you were from the state you came from, and they treat you as a brand new person as if you'd been convicted there, and they have a 10-year obligation for your offense, then you've got 10 years to go. Well, if you've already done 22 years, that's not too appealing to you, right? If you've already done 22 years in another state or a combination of states, and you have to start all over in hypothetically Vermont or Maine, and you have to do 10 more years, that would not be as appealing than if you could go to a state where you didn't have to have a particular amount of time in. So it's situational. When you ask that question, I would want to know how old you are, how much money you have, meaning can you afford to have a lawyer and a psychosexual evaluation of the things that would be necessary if you were trying to have to go through a petition process. If you don't have any money and you're not 100 years old already and, you, and 10 years is not such a long period of time, then in my mind, if I were facing this trying to get off the registry without financial resources, I would want to go to a state that I timed off without having to go through any bureaucracy. Does that make sense? It does to me. Okay. Well, maybe it uh, will make sense to others. But if I had, if I was 70 years old and I wanted to get off and already had 30 years in, and financial resources were not such a challenge, and I could live anywhere, hypothetically my income followed me, and I could live anywhere, I might go to a state that has a petition process, and they don't require a particular amount of time on that state's registry before you'd be eligible. So all these things require research to try to figure out. I think the state of Georgia doesn't require that you've been there a particular time, but you want to be careful of that as we, when we had Brandon Thomas on, or, or, or Mark Urichek, I forget which one, when we talked about that, no state wants you to come try to use their process to get off the registry if you're not, right. if you're not intending on being connected to that state. But if I had the luxury of living anywhere I wanted to, without consideration, I would go to a state as an older person that, where I didn't have to wait. But if I was a younger person and I didn't have a lot of resources, I would go to a state where I would time out. Very simple. The next question is, what has been the most significant improvement of our situation since the registry began? And what has been the most detrimental? So he's asking flip-flop questions on which is the most goodest and which is the most worstest. Well, the, the last one is kind of easy to answer. The, what's been the most detrimental would be the continuous uh, additions to registration requirements. And I get ridiculed for this because somehow or another I'm not sympathetic to victims. But the victims come in every legislative session across the country, almost every legislature, and they come in and they want to think of the registry as punishment. That's why you have to learn how to say civil regulatory scheme and you have to put the victims under place and say this is not a place for punishment, this is not a part of punishment. But they come in demanding additional restrictions because they haven't gotten their pound of flesh. So they're constantly, just think of the cases we've covered where we've read the enhancements where we've talked about they we read from the court decision and we say they changed it in 2001, 2003, 2004. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, the, so what's been the most uh, detrimental thing is the continuous enhancements that are added to people like employment restrictions, residency restrictions, all these things that are continually piled on. And that is driven a lot by victims, advocacy organizations, and by law enforcement itself. And... The passage of the Federal Adam Walsh Act has had a modest amount of detrimental impact. 
we already had registries. People remember the Adam Walsh Act passed in 2006. Every state had a register in 2006. The Adam Walsh Act did not create the registry. But what it did do is it created standards for registries that many states have tried to meet to keep the federal funds flowing. And basically the 10-year registration periods disappeared, which were very common in the early days of registration. When the Jacob Welling Act passed, the early registries were quite common 10 years. And then the Adam Walsh Act came along 10 years later, after basically 10, 12 years after the Wetterling Act passed. And it said, gee, these people are timing off. We've got to change the duration of registration. And they came up with that 15, 25 in life. In my mind, the Adam Walsh Act is, has been very detrimental to our cause. And the most significant improvements would be in terms of the the legal challenges that have been decided in favor of you can't do all these enhancements retroactively. We've been able to roll back some of the requirements through continuous litigation, chipping away at primarily retroactive application. But that doesn't make the registry go away. None of these decisions say you can't have a registry. It just says you can't do certain things retroactively. So the registry is still alive and functioning in all of our states and territories. And to hone in on that one a little bit, where some of those have been rolled back, and you're, you're pointing out specifically retroactively, meaning somebody that was convicted in whatever, 1910, they can't keep piling on more and more shit, but someone that got convicted a year after the new stuff, they get the new stuff. They get Correct. the new hotness. Correct. The, the, the newer registration obligations they're going to have to be challenged on different grounds. And that's kind of what we discuss on the legal strategy, trying to figure out new grounds where we might gain traction to try to tame the registry and hold it at bay. None of us are under any illusion that we're going to end the registry. And I think that's somewhere in one of the questions I saw here, but it's not going yep. to happen anytime soon. And uh, but we're, we're trying to contain the beast. That's what we're trying to do. So... That actually is the perfect segue. What is the best way we can fight against it? Well, I would continue to push on the... You've got to stop the, the enhancements. We had a senator here. He's no longer a senator. He's retired now. But he spoke at our 2012 conference who was, uh, that was held in Albuquerque. And when we started visiting him around 27, uh, 2008, he said... You're fighting a tough issue. I'm with you. He said, but the first thing you've got to do is you've got to stop any more enhancements. He said, you've got to learn how to kill bills. And we learned very early that that was our destiny was to kill bills. So from 2007 to 2011, we were 100% successful in killing bills. And in 2011, I drafted a bill and we passed it. Now, Governor Martinez vetoed it, but we still learned how to pass a bill. And uh, so the, what's, uh, what's the best way we can fight it is all the states would need to become far more proficient at stopping any additions. That goes to you, Florida Action Committee. goes to you, Texas Voices. It goes to all the states that have legislative sessions where bills are introduced, and most of the time they pass. You've got to get better at stopping it. That's the best strategy. And once the sky doesn't fall after you stop bills for a few years, then the receptivity to passing things 
that might begin to peel off some of the restrictions and make it, things a little bit better. There was some receptivity to our improvements in 2011 that, that the governor vetoed, and then in 2013, she accepted some of those improvements for the PFRs as a part of a compromise package. She also got some things that she wanted. But, but we started by killing bills, and that's what I would recommend. The best strategy is to learn how to kill bills. Beans, as we are about to roll the clock over into 2024, what happens about a month or so after we roll into the new year? Well, most of your legislative bodies are convening for either a full-time session or a limited session, 30, 60, 90 days, four months, six months. But we'll be into a session here in mid-January, and that's quite common that legislative sessions are coming up. And I do my best to try to train people. I have tried to train people in private, and I don't have enough bandwidth to talk to everybody privately. Some of these conversations have to take place publicly and have to be in groups. Now, I get the point that maybe the podcast is not ideal, but again, I don't believe I'm giving away any trade secrets. Everything that I talk about is already known. If you listen back to a couple episodes ago when I interviewed Randall, uh, from Parsall, he he got legislatively educated by being interested in a different issue, and it happened to be about finance stuff. And he got hooked up with a group that taught how to read bills and so forth. This is a transferable skill. This isn't PFR specific, if I understand correctly. If you learn how to read a bill, it applies to, I don't know, a tow truck bill as the same as it does to PFRs, as the same as it does to, you know, pick your subject. They're similar in how they operate. Indeed, they are. If you know how to work in the legislative arena, which I did for many years before I tackled PFR issues, I started with opposition to the state lottery. You know, we, were, we were without a lottery when I moved here. And I first was lukewarm to being in opposition to it, but I was doing volunteer work for an organization that was dead set against it. And I warmed up to their points of opposition, and I took the first stab at killing lottery proposals. And we succeeded from 1983 to 1995, uh, preventing a lottery from being in the state. And I learned a lot of people. I learned how to deal with a lot of people from different sides of the political spectrum. I wasn't dealing with PFR issues. Then I dealt with public assistance issues. I dealt with uh, uh, minimum wage issues. I mean, I've dealt with a number of issues, but I started on an issue totally unrelated to this. And, and if we can stay there for just a second. So this is an individual that you and I both know personally, he's a good friend of mine, and he is asking what is the best way we can. So I wanna change that, Larry, is I would like you to tell Rocky how he can fight against it. He is on supervision, probably kind of tight supervision, living in a, in a state that you're familiar with, but what should he do specifically? Should he get involved with the local group? Should he just donate gobs of money to them? What, what do you think that he should do? What would be the first handful of steps? One of the most important things Rocky could do, and I don't know if he would feel comfortable, but he needs to get to know a legislator or two and on a personal level so that he can talk to them about this very significant issue in a way that they've never heard before. Because they have no idea how the registry works. They truly don't. And when they get that information, they will be shocked. 
when they find out that people are on the registry for things they're on there for, they'll be shocked. And you're rolling your eyes saying, how could they be shocked when it's in the state statute? Because they've never thought about it. Because there's hundreds of thousands of, of pages of legislation. Yeah, they've never, they've never thought about it, been exposed to it. But if you, got, if you have uh, money to donate to the Georgia cause, I think they've got a fairly uh, competent uh, team in place. It's small, but I think they've got people there that know what they're doing if you've got money uh, to donate. But one of the best things you can do is talk to a lawmaker personally, get the audience of a lawmaker or two. And when these bills come up, there's somebody there who says, by the way, a constituent of mine said this, and I had no idea. And I'll tell you, it happened. I'm not having trouble recalling the guy's name. But he went and spoke to a senator, his senator, and Senator Richard Martinez is no longer in office, but he went and spoke to Richard about what the registry did to him. And Richard came in to a hearing, and he started talking about what that man had told him. And he said, we can't keep piling on to these people. And he, he uh, recited what had been said to him about life on the registry. And he said, we, we, these people need to be able to function somewhat normal. And he had, Richard had no idea because nobody had ever told him. Um, somebody just asked quickly, where would you learn how to kill a bill? And I, every time I hear this, Larry, there's a movie called Kill Bill. And every time we say Kill a Bill, I always think of just go watch the movie Kill Bill. Not related at all, but that's just where my head goes. Um, and, I, and my reply was, Larry, so how would, how would we, what would be the way that we could in mass teach our people how to kill bills? Well, there's going to be some variation depending on the state because each state has different processes. You can kill bills in some states by making sure they don't cross over by a certain date. Right. We don't have a crossover date. But that effectively kills a bill unless they place it on a bill that's already crossed over as an amendment, which they can do. But there's a, it's going to be state-specific. In a state that runs year-round, you may not be able to do the, the strategy that we do here. We do the strategy, and I know I'm going to offend people by telling people what we do, but, but they know we do this. What we do is what well done. We have a committee process, and bills are given two committees on each, in each uh, uh, side of the rotunda. So if it starts as a House bill, it's going to get two House committees, and then when it crosses the rotunda to the Senate, it's going to get two more committees. And in a part-time legislature, your goal and you're, when you're in the killing business, is to make sure that you wreck it at one of those pressure points in one of those committees. You've got four shots at it. Now, I don't think I've given any trade secrets because they know that they've assigned it to four committees. And the proponents of the bill know that they're trying to get it through the committee, and they know that I'm doing the same thing. I'm going and visiting the same people that they're begging to put the thing on the committee hearing to get it scheduled. They know that somebody else just came out the door that was begging them not to put it on the schedule. Because I don't want it heard. If, if I'm wanting to kill it, I'm wanting to buy as much time as I can. Because if it's got four committees to go through and it's got uh, 60 days to get through it, every day I can buy makes it less likely they're going to get to the finish line. So things like that, those are widely known, that, that, that strategy. We kill it by whatever tactic works best in your assembly. You may be in a place like Maryland where Richard, no, no, it wasn't Richard, it's something Valerio, he was the chair of the House Judiciary Committee. Valerio didn't like a particular bill. He, if someone could convince him it was a bad piece of legislation, and I even traveled to Maryland, so I saw this firsthand. Valerio was in no hurry to hear it. And 
so he would help you run out the clock. And so even even in Maryland, that same strategy works. But it's how to kill bills that's going to be very uh, uh, specific on how your state operates. But as a general rule, committee chair chairs have a lot of impact on scheduling of legislation. If it can't get to the committee, through the committee, in some fashion, very few states let things go directly to the floor for a vote. So all your battle is trying to keep something bottled up in committee. I, I think what I heard you say in that, that, yes, it's going to be state-specific, but there might only be three or four different scenarios. Like if there's a year-round legislature, then you have the part-time ones, and I, there isn't going to be a crossover day. What is that, Nebraska that only has the unicameral uh, uh, Congress, whatever? Correct. They only have one chamber. Um, so there's obviously no crossover if there's just one. No. So like I'm from that, I hear you saying I think there's two, three, or four strategies from that point of view. Correct. But you're going to have to figure out what works best in your state. And I think makes, I, is, there, sure. is the person asking the question though about like reading legislation and trying to figure out how to attack it? Is that what they're also asking? Perhaps, and that is one of the straight, most straightforward things. If you want someone to be in opposition to a bill, you have to give them succinct reasons. And what PFRs tend to do is they want to come in with voluminous recidivism studies. <laughs> they want to give them a booklet of stuff. And that's not the way it works. It doesn't work that way. I'm sorry. You, you wish it did, but it doesn't. And you need to give them something they can soundbite. This is a soundbite business. And when, when they are coming up with what they can tell a camera that comes rolling in saying, why did you not vote for this bill? They don't, they can't hand the reporter that recidivism document. They need to say, because of these two reasons. And uh, moving on. Oh, go, go, go. I'm for, sorry, if, I didn't want to interrupt you. And for some reason, the people will not accept that. They think that when I say stuff like that, that I'm just making this up and pulling it out of thin air, and they get mad at me because they know that if anybody would read that recidivism document, they would understand that nobody recidivates and that the registry is built on false premises. And they don't understand why I can't understand that. And it frustrates them <laughs> to no end that I can't understand something that's so simple to them. And I tell them, I understand that recidivism is not a significant problem but it's not a winning hand. What you refuse to understand, it's not a winning hand. And you need to give them something that they can soundbite. You don't need to give them that voluminous amount of talking points. You need to give them a couple of talking points. That's it. Um, and we, we've certainly covered this one, so this one will be super quick. And what do you see using your, you, your, your snow globe of predictions? What's the final outcome? Will the registry ever be abolished? It will only be abolished if we get the political will to do it, meaning that the American people have to not support the concept of branding their citizens. And we've not messaged that very well. I mean, we'll throw around uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the Jews, you know, the, the marking, but we've got to convince people that putting restraints on people as we do and branding them as we do is un-American. We've got to perfect that message. But otherwise, unless the political arena can abolish it, the courts can never abolish the registry. And I get the most hate mail when I say that because they say, Larry, you don't understand. The courts could abolish it. No, they can't because you could register people in a constitutional fashion. It would have to be a very benign registry, but you could have a constitutional registry. I want there to be no registry. And that is not something the courts can do for us. 
So to totally abolish the registry, we're going to have to change the mindset of Americans. And I don't see that on the horizon in my lifetime. And I'm 182 years old now. And uh, that email address is crackpot at registrymatters.co. <laughs> Final question from Rocky is, and I, I gave him, he called me the other day and we talked about this one. He says, I have a friend, an 80-year-old friend on the registry, level two, off of probation, probation, this person is in Georgia, and doesn't feel it is worth the effort to apply to get off the registry. What would you say to the individual? That's a tough one. If you're 80, you're probably not having employment discrimination of any significant uh, way. You're probably not out socializing much. There's most 80-year-olds are not all that active. So I'm guessing that the average 80-year-old is restricted mostly to their home, right? Uh, I don't have that detail, but 80, you know, George Burns was pretty active till whatever, 105 or something. Uh, so, uh, but I think it's always worth the effort to get off the registry. I'm just trying to look at it through the 80-year-olds. It is always, always, always worth the effort to get off the registry if you have a reasonable shot at getting off the registry. Projectiles can come through your through your windows. Your house can mysteriously catch fire. All these things of vandalism can happen to you when you're on a public hit list. So it's always worth the effort to get off the registry. Could you imagine a scenario, Larry, where the 80-year-old has the, I forget what the word is, where they have the little oxygen thing in their nose and they're carrying around a tank and it's challenging for them to get there for their annual registration and they're late and they then issue a warrant for the 80 year old who was just a little bit too immobilized at being 80 that they couldn't register and they actually locked the individual up. Can you imagine that scenario? I've actually heard of something similar to that. I don't know if it's quite that egregious, but I've heard of elderly people that mainly it's cognitive decline and they get mixed up on their dates Okay. and don't make it down there and they get violated. I've heard of that, and it's really sad. And that's another reason why an 80-year-old would want to get off the registry, because you're more likely to have cognitive decline at 80 than you are at 40. And the DA's going to be an ass and be like, well, law says, and you've been on the registry for 70 years now, that, and they're still going to prosecute you? There would be some that would. There would be some that wouldn't. My favorite DA of all time, uh, Alex Hunter up in Boulder and uh, his chief deputy, Peter Hofstrom, they probably wouldn't have, but there are people who would. That's just awful. So I, so the, the, the answer is just I, the threat of prosecution, which is the exact same thing we were talking about with the Florida registry, uh, with the website, excuse me, the threat of prosecution. Doesn't matter about whether there's a website or not. If you're not on the registry, then missing that quote unquote day, there wouldn't be a day, Missing that day, you wouldn't get arrested because, well, you're not on the registry anymore. That would be a threat of prosecution, but probably a greater threat than violence. But I would say that retaliation and violence against you. And all it takes is some busybody to say, that old 80-year-old man, did you know he's still a pervert? I seen him. <laughs> he was out in his yard, and he was looking at my granddaughter, and I can't believe he was staring over at her like he was. I said, well, wait a minute. Wouldn't you have to been looking at his yard for you to know that he was looking in yours? And they never can answer that question when I pose it. Well, how would you know he's looking in your yard if you weren't looking into his? <laughs> so I love that answer, Larry. You've given it to me that. I'm like, uh, yeah, that's a good point. How did you know he was looking if you weren't looking? Why were you looking in his yard? Maybe you're the one. Okay. Are you a first-time listener of Registry Matters? 
Well then make us a part of your daily routine and subscribe today. Just search for Registry Matters through your favorite podcast app, hit the subscribe button, and you're off to the races. You can now enjoy hours of sarcasm and snark from Andy and Larry on a weekly basis. Oh, and there's some excellent information thrown in there too. Subscribing also encourages others of you people to get on the bandwagon and become regular Registry Matters listeners. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to Registry Matters right now. Help us keep fighting and continue to say F-Y-P. Um, and now we are on to the final contestant for the night. This is uh, Brian, and I will leave it at that. And let me go find him and unmute him. And you are now live. Go ahead, Brian. Hey, Larry. Um, so kind of in the same vein of the scuttling the bills, uh, ahead of time before they get anywhere. If it seems to me like it, it might be worth a shot, maybe to try helping write some minor changes in a subtle way that constantly are improving the law in our favor. Is that something that's even doable, or how would somebody go about learning how to write bills like that? Well. It's not the writing that's the problem. It's getting the uh, support for passage. As a general rule, if you're going to do something that only helps PFRs, it's going to be difficult to gain traction with that politically. I always take the compromise approach. I want to go to the state and find out what they want that I can live with. And I know that seems like a corrupt system, but that's the reality of the system we have. And I want to find out what they want, and I prefer to write it myself than them writing it because I feel like I can write it in a way that's better than what the state could come up with. For example, and I'll, I'll go off topic, if, if there's going to be a voter ID law, if, the, if you realize that you're, we don't have voter ID requirements here, but say the political winds change and we're going to have to pass a voter ID law, would you rather the, who would you rather write that? Someone who's lukewarm to it that would really not be in favor of it, but want to have a minimum voter minimal uh, voter ID law, or would you rather the people who are rabid write the write the same thing? Well, the same thing with PFR stuff. I want to go to the to the state and find out what I can put into a bill that helps PFRs that I can live with, because that may encourage them to stand down. But yes, anybody can write because all you have to do is take the existing statute. That's how bills are generally drafted, unless you're going to do a repeal and replace. You're doing an amendment. So if you know how to take a PDF or not a PDF, uh, uh, if you take the languages exist, if you can if you can do strike through on your cursor and you can put insert and bold and you can do I mean you can write a bill. So you can put you can do those uh, changes yourself. But getting support is going to be where you if you don't know anybody, where would you take that bill? If you if you don't know a soul in the legislature, what would you do with it? Well, I would imagine that you'd have to get, uh, you know, chummy with your local rep. Correct. Or a, or a legislator. Your local one would be great if, if he or she's interested in it because they represent you. And if you can convince them that this is not politically a disaster for them, it may be politically neutral or even ideally there's some advantage. That's how I got the bill passed in 2013, as the governor had something that she really wanted. And... I could live with what she wanted if I wrote it. 
we had the crime called uh, uh, child solicitation by electronic communication device. It was not registrable because of a very complex uh, nuance of our, uh, uh, our law here. It had been on the books since 27, but no one had had to register all the way up to 2013. She wanted that. And I said, okay, I'll give that to you. But it has to be prospective for anybody who's convicted after this becomes effective. That means that everybody's grandfathered who didn't have to register between 27 and 2013. I'll give that to you. Here's what I want. And I got what I wanted, which was preemption of state and local, uh, not state, but local uh, restrictions on PFRs. I got the uh, requirement that they send out notice to people uh, at least 15 days before they're due to register so that we don't get people uh, violated for forgetting. And I got some things I wanted uh, for the, it's good for the PFRs. But if you just want to do a, a bill that's only helping PFRs, it's going to be tough politically. Not saying you can't do it, but it's going to be very tough. Is it is it better to I, I hear what you're saying, and I'm not trying to, to go against that, but if you could go for one tiny little improvement or go for the whole kit and caboodle, which is a better idea? Well, both are great ideas, depending on the, the situation with the legislature. Like Arizona, I'm working with them. They need to do a major overhaul of their, their registry. It's, it's a mess. And, but if the registry is generally okay, livable, not, a, not ideal, but livable, but there are a couple of things that are really jacked up that need to be fixed. It would be okay to go after that, or those small things. But it's going to be tough if it only helps the PFR. That's all I'm pointing out to that. The governor had an agenda, and she ultimately would have had that pass at some point between 2013 and now. She would have gotten that crime to be registrable because it was intended to be registrable in 2007. But there was a there was a problem in how we how we compile our legislation. And it would take another whole show to explain that. But she would have ultimately gotten it, and I wouldn't have gotten anything that I wanted. And I thought, well, gee, if the governor's going to win anyway, I'd rather get something out of it. So let's give, her, let's give her what she wants now and get some of what we want. Anything further, Brian? I don't think so. Uh, just, I'm trying to figure out you know, how to learn more about it. So it's a process. Is it okay if I ask you about your success lately with your local person? Um, I haven't had much to report, um, but I mean, uh, I, I do have a very um, active uh, local congresswoman who is, uh, I, I shared my story with, and her first reaction was, you shouldn't have to register for your entire life. Um, so she she's aware of it, but there's been no forward motion beyond that. I don't know that you're going to, you've shared her, this story with Larry. You're going to have to take her something that you want her to do. Now you say Congressman, are you meaning Washington or you mean you're at your state level? Uh, state. Yeah. I think at the state level is a more, much more realistic uh, possibility. Absolutely. For Absolutely. But being that we don't have a federal registry, that'd be correct. But I just heard you use the term Congressman, but yeah, you, you need to take her something. You can tell her and she can feel sorry till she's blue in the face, but you have to give her something you want done. And I could walk you through all that uh, in terms of how you would best position yourself for that. It sounds like you've already done the basic framework of having establishing a relationship, but you, now you got to oh, get yeah. something that you, that you want from her. And, and you got to tell her why it's good for her politically, or at least it won't be a disaster for her politically. And right. if you do that, you get to the next step that she might carry a bill for you. 
Well, and I mean, in that to that point, I mean, just for the audience attending or reading the transcript, um, it is amazing how accessible a lot of these state legislators are. Um, if you start showing up to their events and be kind and, and respectful and just engage them in regular conversation, they will take the time to get to know you. Um, and if you volunteer to help them out in their campaigns, they appreciate that even more. Um, I mean, I'm on a first name basis with my local representative. That's really awesome. And soon you'll be on speed dial where you'll be able to call. And uh, if you're I'm, working, out, I'm working on it. Yeah, if you're I'm working already, on it. You'll be there. Make a donation and you'll find that that'll help a lot. Oh, I, and, I do and, that as well. When you're on speed dial, you're like calling and saying, hi, Jane, how are you? Hi, Bob. Uh, yeah. that's, that's, I hope. Sorry to interrupt your dinner. Yep, that's what you do. Because <laughs> Larry, you talked to like the governor the other day or something, didn't you? No, not it was your rep, governor. I think. No, yeah, not to the governor, but yeah, I talked to I talked to my rep and senator all the time. And you cussed one of them out, I think you said. I did indeed. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't do any cuss words, but I did point out hypocrisy, and I I think it's important. I wish the other side would do that, but when my party's being hypocritical, I have no hesitation. We'll have to do a segment on that, and I'll explain the whole story of what happened, but absolutely, I did. Well, and the main reason I'm going down this path is it costs me nothing. Um, you know, if you go get a lawyer and try to, you know, sue your way out or, or use the judicial system, that costs money. All this is really costing me some time and, you know, maybe a donation here and there, but that's a lot less expensive than lawyers. Did you want to disclose to the audience what state you're in? Colorado. So... And to to that though, I would I would imagine a downtown Atlanta kind of rep has a much bigger budget than I don't know the person that's in like I don't know McRae, Georgia. Like the the donation amounts are going to be proportionate to the population size. That you're out there in the stick somewhere. I don't know what like a hundred dollar donation does that show up on the radar? Well, I don't think I completely agree with what you're saying. The Okay. The, the apportionment of the districts are similar throughout the state, but the income level is not. I mean, you have uh, at a big sprawling state like Georgia, you have poverty, you have wealth. So you would get less donations, but it would be more because of the income capacity to give. But people don't just uh, donate within their district. If you look at their campaign disclosure reports, they get, dis they get money from out of state, from all sorts of uh, resources. If you look at their campaign disclosures, Colorado probably has a pretty robust system of campaign disclosure reporting, and you can see yes. the source of donations of where it comes from. It's not just from within the district. Well, it, what it, kind of money, though, starts to show up on their radar? I'm sure $5 doesn't get you a lot. When you say on their radar, if if you if you're a candidate at a state office in these states like what we're talking about, Colorado, New Mexico, anything of, of two hundred fifty bucks or more is a substantial okay. donation. Uh, yeah, if you give ten dollars, it may not be noticed. <laughs> if you give them two hundred fifty, three hundred, four hundred dollars, I mean, those are large donations for for a place like Colorado, New Mexico. Okay, it, go ahead, it, Brian. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. It, I mean, I'm I'm absolutely playing the long game on this. Um, I'm, a, I'm a lifetime registrant, so it, it's really, to me, irrelevant when I get this done, as long as I get it done. So it's not that I'm looking at just the state level, I'm looking at the city level, because a fair amount of the people that serve on the city council move up to the state level. And if I get to know them at a city level, I have a much better and longer term relationship with them when they do reach the state level. 
Thoughts on that, Larry? I agree with you. Uh, I agree with you. Uh, people often migrate from local government to state government. So if you can form that relationship, it'll carry over as you as they move up the uh, elective office chain. Because very few people are just content to be a local counselor. Not to say that those jobs are not important. They're very important. But they start there and then they, they move to something else. All right. Well, thank you, Brian. I appreciate it very much. And thank you for coming on. Is there anything else before we go? Well, I think we need to make this into two episodes. So we've been on an hour and 20 minutes. So what we can just tell another 10 minutes, we can divide it into two, right? Well, I know I was actually just referring to Brian. We have that uh, that letter that you gave me that there's still that that'll put us right at around an hour and a half. But I've been asking in chat, Larry, and they think that it should be one episode. That's what they've all said. Um, but just to circle back, Brian, uh, anything else? No, I, I'm good for now. Thank you. Cool. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Um, so can we do this letter and then we'll be able to close it out and then we can decide if we uh, split it in two or not. Okay. I don't know what parts you're going to read. I didn't highlight any, but you could read the salient points of the letter. It, to me, what I read looks like, like the first three paragraphs. Okay. And, uh, so, and, and who is this from, Larry? It's one of our subscribers to the uh, newsletter that's not really connected with the podcast. Okay. Um, it says, <clears throat> I wanted to acknowledge I received the DOG recidivism report you recently sent me. Thank you for this information. I'm also writing in response to the latest Narsaw Digest, Volume 16, Issue 6, December, January of 2324. Our states, uh, excuse our states, pages 13, Vermont. I was under the impression Vermont had a more relaxed registry. Uh, at least based on what I've read in Your Life on the List, second edition by Derek Logue, uh, who also operates OnceFallen.com. Per the book, it claims Vermont is not substantially AWA compliant, no residency restrictions, no employment restrictions, no presence restrictions, no Halloween holiday restrictions, no ID card laws, community notifications requiring several steps from members of the public. It's interestingly worded. All of this sounds good on paper as far as uh, a state that may allow a good quality of life for a PFR. Being a person who will soon be released uh, at my sentencing district in South Florida, Vermont sounded much better and had been telling loved ones to research possible properties to purchase. I was surprised to read in your Vermont section, the state has draconian SOR laws. It's concerning and makes me rethink all my options. I'm hoping Tim Burgess can provide more information on what makes this state's laws draconian, and if perhaps the information provided in this book is incorrect and misleading. I think that covers it right there. I think it does. And I would like to tell a story because everything is relative to what you know. I don't think Mr. Burgess, the author of that, has ever lived anyplace else. And I don't think Mr. Burgess is really up to full throttle in terms of understanding the the draconian registries that exist around the country. So I would say that uh, Derek Logue would be much more of a reliable resource than anything he's published because Derek, for better or worse, whether you like him or don't like him, he knows a lot more about the registry. And I would trust what Derek is saying. If there's a book that Derek's written that says this, I agree with him. It's not that draconian being in Vermont, but it's relative. I spent about 60 days in the Boulder County Jail back in my early days. The 
Boulder County Jail that uh, uh, no longer exists. It was by the Hall of Justice over at Sixth and Canyon. And it was the ideal jail if you're going to be incarcerated. I think now those of you who are looking for a jail to go to, you want to go to Pitkin County, Colorado, rather than, than Boulder. But in those days, Sheriff Leach was running a very good jail. And the people would, as they were meandering around the jail, with all the luxuries they had of a jail that had carpeted uh, housing units, had private rooms, wooden doors, intercom system if you're having an emergency that you could call uh, and actually talk to a person. Uh, and when I say open door, they had periods of time during the day when the, the jail doors, if you were in uh, their, their uh, housing system, if you were in green or gold, uh, or red, I think it was. They they have hours where they just open the doors and you could go to the library, you could go to the gym, you could go outside of the courtyard, you could do all these things. Now, you were in jail, but you had an awful lot of freedom when in jail. And people just moaned and groaned about how horrible jail was. And I told them, I said, well, you know, it's actually a pretty good jail. <laughs> you know, oh, the food sucks. I said, no, actually, the food's pretty good here. <laughs> I mean, it's not... It's not uh, fine dining at its best, but it's comparable to what you would have in an institutional setting in a hospital, you know, in a in a school cafeteria. You know, it's it's adequate and, and it well, the caloric intake is enough, and you could live without any commissary funds on what they feed you. That sucks. Well, of course it does. You're in jail. So the analogy I'm making: the Vermont registry is less than ideal. You'd prefer not to be on a registry at all. But if Tim Burgess thinks that is draconian, then he has very little experience with registration laws around the country because Vermont is far, far from being draconian. And in fact, what would we use? What would the word be used for Florida then in Alabama? In Mississippi and Louisiana and on and on and on. It's like it, but it's relative to a person's understanding. A person who got thrown in the Boulder County jail. And a talk show host, he even told that uh, uh, talk show host, maybe those in Colorado know if Gary Tesler is still alive. But Gary Tesler had been arrested and spent a couple of days in Boulder County Jail. And he said, when after they took his fingerprints and did the standard booking, and then they put him in the intake, which was the, the blue module where you, they're evaluating if you're going to be able to function in a jail setting and what type of uh, what type of housing would be appropriate for you before they moved you through the level system. He said it was the most awful feeling of his life, of his entire life, when the mechanical door clanged shut. Because in intakes, they had the mechanical doors that, that went on the, the track, and you heard it go bang after you heard the buzzing of the thing. But once you got out of intake, the housing units got a lot better, and you were not subject to all that stuff. But as far as Tesla was concerned, those 24 hours or what it was in jail was the horror of his life because it was relative to a man who had never been in trouble, <laughs> had never seen the inside of a jail, and he thought it was awful. So that, that would be my response to this, to this letter writer. The Vermont Registry is not draconian by any means. You, you don't have any prohibitions. All the things he mentioned, to my knowledge, are true. And we've got a patron who just recently located there. He verified that. In fact, just very recently, remember we had a discussion after the show, and he was grateful that he moved there. Yep, so uh, far. Yeah, so uh, you know, it's just it's just not the case. But uh, it's all 
comparable to your life experience. If that's the only registry you have an experience with, it might seem draconian. But if I had to be on a registry, that would be on one of the states I would look at. Okay. Um, well, I, th I think this would be the time, Larry, that I'm going to wish everyone a happy holidays. It's a, uh, gosh, last week it was the second night of Hanukkah. Hanukkah's over then, I guess. Jeez, and I didn't light the candle. I asked my kid if he would want to light the candles just for the exposure to the culture and the experience. And he was like, nah, I'm good. Like, really? Anyway, uh, happy holidays, everyone. And uh, anything you want to say uh, walking out the door, Larry? I would say the same thing. We're grateful to everyone who's supported us for the last, what, six plus years. And I apologize that some of you have not been able to get the answers from me that you would like. <laughs> and, uh, but hopefully you understand that we do the best with the information we have to, to be helpful. And that's the whole motivation of the program. Uh, I actually would be happy if I didn't spend so many hours on this issue it really is it's quite draining but i know people are benefiting from it people do appreciate the information and i do believe we're providing a valuable service and those who who support us thank you and happy holidays to you and hopefully we'll have exciting stuff to report in 2024 fantastic registrymatters.co is where you can find the show notes and again go over and leave uh, reviews hopefully nice ones and uh thumbs up like subscribe all that other stuff and like i said registrymatters.co and if you are so inclined and fortunate to have extra disposable income that 1400 dollars a month thing that would be great patreon.com slash registrymatters even oh we did get a new patron that was the one last thing i needed to say ryan thank you very much appreciate it and if if just a buck throw a buck our way uh, monthly and that would be fantastic and i hope everybody has a great happy holidays and this will either be one part or two part episode so if it's long then it's one part if it's sort of short then it's two episodes and look for one next week and i will see you all it'll be kind of like new year's eve or something like that when we record again there sounds good Take care, my friend. Have a great uh, weekend and holiday, and I'll talk to you soon. Good night. You've been listening to FYP.